You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. And I've an announcement to make. An announcement to make. <laughs> Are you ready? Go You're on, just then. snickering at me. You don't know is what it is. Is it a biggie? Is it the biggie? <laughs> I don't know what is the biggie. <laughs> you tell us. Are you going to get married to yourself? Are you talking. Oh, dear. After a 35 year quest to. <laughs> Uh, after a 35-year quest to get all my Weetabix cards back together that were lost in a house move in 1979, I have finally this week completed that task. Hooray! Oh, my God. Uh, do you know why it's a big announcement? Because we talk about them on the podcast all the time, don't we? We do. We do, yeah. and you have been so disappointed at not having them for so long. How did you get them? How was, how, oh, how eBay. was it, the search? eBay. eBay. <laughs> I'm always looking for them on eBay, <laughs> and I always get gazumped at the last minute. And this week, I was the one who did the gazumping. Good man. Mm-hmm. What was the last one? What do you mean, what was the last one? I bid on a set. Okay. Well, what, what was in that set? Um, The Weetabix cards, Lee. Oh, come on, Joe. What were the characters? What oh, were the monsters? There are six Daleks, Cybermen, yes. yeah. I don't know, two Doctors, Sarah Jane. Oh, Sarah Jane, right, yeah. I know the ones. I, I always imagine if I got them in my hands that that I would instantly be transported back. I always imagine that, but it probably wouldn't. Is it like that when you get them? I don't know. They're not due to arrive till tomorrow. Oh, oh no! You've been a bit premature there. Then. <laughs> well, no, because by the Until time it's actually in your hands. No, by the time this podcast goes out, they will be, so I'll be fine. Ah, uh, cool. Um, as long as they don't get wet. I'm post-preempting fate or pre-post-empting. Oh God, don't! That's um, like something on Gallifrey or something. <laughs> Should we do Knox Box, guys? Go on, then. go on. Then. Okay, you ready? Yep. Three, two. One. Nox Box. Oh, did somebody do a harmony vocal? That'd be me. Yeah. Yeah. Who usually tries too hard? Is it, well, is it one of those instances where in your head you say harmony vocal, but what actually, (laughs) what actually happens is something else instead? Yeah. Yeah. Is that that what just happened? That's like I just coughed up a cat. You know, last week I promised that this week Grant would watch The Doctor, The Widow and the Wardrobe and maybe Oof. also Asylum of the Daleks. But I think he must have had a week off work because he's actually watched four episodes and a classic series story he'd never seen before as well. Mm-hmm. So lots to review this week. <clears throat> so, The Doctor, The Widow and the Wardrobe. He says... It was crap at Christmas, so it was never going to be any better now, was it? <laughs> never have so many supposedly funny lines not been funny. Worst mm. Christmas special ever. Yep. Well, well <clears throat> agreed, I'm afraid. I agree wholeheartedly there. 
I thought that the first time I watched it, but then usually with Stephen Moffat's stories, if I don't like them the first time, I tend to like them more the second time. Mm. But then I rewatched that, and it really wasn't any better the second time. Mm. I think it's his wooden chicken. <laughs> Whatever a wooden chicken is. Nightmare in Silver the other day, actually. Oh no, but Nightmare in Silver, and it was—it really wasn't any better. In fact, I mean, it's, it's not particularly. I don't know, is it? I don't know. I'm not going to go there. It just wasn't any better when I watched it. Asylum of the Daleks. Grant mm-hmm. says, I really like this, and I think the final ten minutes or so are brilliant. I like Jenna Coleman, and I think she's a breath of fresh air. Quite unsettling mm-hmm. in places, and I like that it does something different with the Daleks. The only negative is Pouty Pond. I'm counting the episodes now till she goes, but a very positive start to Series 7. She gets better. <clears throat> well, she's only got four episodes left. Um, <laughs> dinosaurs on a spaceship. Sorry, gents. I know you like this, but I think it's a load of nonsense. I'm not talking to him anymore. <laughs> Amy's annoying, he says. Mitchell and Webb aren't and never will be funny. And it also oh. tries... To... Oh! And it also... Oh, dear. And it also tries to emotionally blackmail you by having the big bad guy kill a lovely helpless dinosaur. I won't be watching this again for a long time. <gasps> lovely Tricy. Maybe they should put some number wang in there. You know how I tried to sack... <laughs> you know how I said I was going to sack Grant last week and then relented? <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> um, I think I might actually write next week's entry myself if I'm not happy with it. Um, uh, the next story, the last of the uh, new series stories he watched this week, A Town Called Mercy. He says, now there's a surprise. I wasn't expecting much of this one as I thought it was instantly forgettable before, but I enjoyed it this time around. The story is nothing mm. groundbreaking, but I really like the Western setting and the cyborg is excellently realised. So there you go. Yeah, that's that was a grower for us. I think I remember us reviewing Dinosaurs and that at the same time and we were kind of not so struck by Mercy. Mm-hmm. But actually, uh, the, f- watches, uh, the more I watch it, the better it gets. It's becoming a fast favourite of mine now. I love it, actually. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay, bonus story. He watched one from the classic series as well he'd never seen before, and it was The Time Monster. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, he says, just watch this for the first time. A funny story, although not intentionally so. Episode 4 is all padding, but the thing I really take from this story is the thought of how much more watchable Warriors of the Deep would be if Ingrid Pitt had um, shown more of her assets. I've only ever got so far through the Time Monster. I've not got that far. It's never got that entertaining, so I, I should try harder. Really? Yeah, I, I, think, think... I think it's great fun. It, it, what I've seen of it was it was just silly and, and brilliant. Yeah, it is silly. It but is. I wouldn't silly. say brilliant. No. <laughs> oh, I'd say, well, it's silly and something. It's, hmm, <laughs> it's definitely an interesting story. And uh, actually, there's, if I remember right, isn't there a nice little tete-a-tete between him and Joe in a prison talking it's, about Gallifrey strangely enough. Well, it's the daisiest daisy story. Yes. Are you trying to segue sure. there Lee? Oh I was trying to but maybe we need to get out of Knox box first. Yeah okay let's do it. Three, two, one. Box Knox. Yes. Yep. Do you know Lee that doing the thing backwards? Yeah. 
that was probably going to get annoying after the first couple of times you did it. If it had you know, already been annoying the first couple of times Mark, you did it. Mark does it every time. When he's not here, I do it for him. I do believe I'm you're gonna, lying. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn Knoxbox backwards properly. So when you play it backwards, you'll hear that it actually sounds right. I think you'll find Knoxbox backwards is Zob Knob. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually not, obviously. But there <laughs> no, you go. but it's funnier. We've got to do it that way next time. <laughs> Zob knob. Uh, we'll forget. Um, look, we haven't said what the theme is, but you've hinted at it at least <laughs> twice now. And we didn't say what it was going to be last week. So, no. although people will know what it is, because when they download the podcast, it'll say, won't it? <laughs> so I'm kind of building up suspense in order to reveal something that's already known here, aren't I? You are. Okay, well... You know, I've, for the next edition of Starburst magazine, which will be due out in a couple of weeks after this podcast goes out, I've written an article about crap monsters. And we put out a call to arms on our Facebook page for people to nominate their crap monsters. So this week, the subject we're doing is the subject of Gallifrey stories. <sighs> and as usual, when we do a subject like this, we're not here to say whether the stories are any good, which bits we liked. We're here to ask the question, do they work? And in fact, I wrote it down and I said just now, didn't I? The question we're here to ask is, why go there and was it worth it? <laughs> A good two questions. Yeah, well, well, it's the important questions. Mm. Uh, I mean, if we go back to the very start, we're not going to dwell upon any stories... That involve Time Lords, but don't take place on Gallifrey, right? Okay. I thought you were talking about Skegness. Chroma. Chroma, Simon. Oh, Chroma. Okay. And, that's, and that's black hole stories, which we'll get to in due course. Okay. Okay, speaking <laughs> of, a, speaking of sorry, black... Sorry, I thought it was a song by, song by Tricky, isn't it? Chroma, Chroma. Um, no, Black Hole Stories is an album yes. by Tricky. You're getting yeah, confused Massive there, Attack. Like. I must be, sorry, Tumbleweed Time. It's massive Attack. Oh, Massive Attack. That's it, sorry, okay. wrong one. Get your Bristol bands <laughs> sorted out, please. Oh, okay. Gallifrey. No, okay, yes, but you just disturbed me in the middle of saying something else. Oh, Black Hole sorry. Stories. Okay, yes. see if between the pair of you now, you can come up with three Doctor Who stories that involve black holes. Three Doctors? Yep. The other one? Oh, you're well, not going to be any good next time we do a Journey quiz, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS. Uh, that involves... Not a black hole, the thing of a jig, oh, doesn't no. it? Impossible, impossible planet. Oh, well done, Lee. That's two. Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS is a dwarf star, isn't it? Um, a thing of a jig. Oh, yeah, of course it is. I was thinking it was a. Yeah. Oh, mm. black hole. A supernova, um, rather. I can oh, think yeah. of one more off the top of my head. I think. Is there not a black hole in the Terror of the Vervoid segment of Trial of a Time Lord at the uh, end of part two? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember there being one, but maybe there is. Isn't that the <laughs> cliffhanger at the end of the second part of Terror of the Vervoids, where they're about to descend into a black hole? Uh, yeah, there is something like that, isn't there? No idea, I can't remember. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. You yeah. two. We've got um, people shouting We're right qualified now. here, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> Embarrassing, more like. Welcome to the Blue Box podcast, where experts get it wrong all the time. <laughs> well... Or we do, anyway. Yeah, in what universe would you describe yourselves as experts, Lee? 
in a parallel universe. I don't think we ever have, actually. <laughs> Legion. No, that's what I'm saying. We never. We oh, are never experts, ever. We're just people who love Doctor Who. But no, it's an interesting question. Do, I can't think of any more, to be honest. I, I presume the Vervoids had that then. I thought, no. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Let's move on. Oh, no. What did you think? Because I'm interested now. Are there enough black hole stories for us to do a black hole podcast? I don't think there is. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I don't think there is. <laughs> Surprising, though, isn't it? And, unless you have, you know, get some research done, and maybe there, there are about five or six out there somewhere. But well, I'm sure no. it's in the the program. Do you know John Lamar Officio's program guide, where yes. he goes the alphabetical one? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm sure if there's Beef black, black holes, hole. yeah, I'm yeah. sure it'll be in there, wouldn't it? It would be, wouldn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to go and have a look. Technically, okay. every McCoy story's got a black hole in the credits, isn't it? Is oh. that a black hole, that big swirly purple That's thing? the series going down a black hole, isn't it? it that is, yeah. is, in fact... You're not talking about the black hole that winks? Are you being funny? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, God. No, I wasn't, actually. No. I, I was, that, that weird thing where there's all... <laughs> according geometric to, asteroids. According to the first version... Of Jean-Marc Lafitier's, uh, program guide, which only goes as far as the first four doctors. Um, black holes have at various times led to an antimatter universe in the story RRR, which is the three doctors, mm. powered the Time three Lords, doctors, yeah. which is in 4P, which I presume is Underworld, or helped the oh. Nymon to cross the universe in 5L. I don't know which story that would be. Mark's no. not here to help us out with that one. Yeah. There you go. I'm putting the program guide back on the shelf. <clears throat> so there you go. We could also talk about Underworld and Horns of Nymon. Well, there you are. And 5L, whatever that is. That is the Horns of Nymon, you twit. Oh, was it? I thought you said you didn't know what it was. Oh, my God. Because oh. I said the word Nymon. I was pretending not to know what it was. You because really I just said the word Nymon. Yeah. I've had a hard day at work. <laughs> So okay. I'm going to let you talk about Gallifrey and I'll just chip in. <laughs> well, okay, here's the thing. When the series was set up back in 1963, it posed two questions, didn't it, in that very first episode? And one is, what is so unearthly about this child? And mm-hmm. um, that was answered in pretty quick succession by the end of the episode, pretty much. She's mm-hmm. from another time in another place. Yeah. But the other question was Doctor Who. And inherent in that question is not just the notion of, you know, what is this guy's character? Are we asking, what, you know, what drives this guy? What makes him tick? But the most inherent thing in that question <clears throat> is where does he come from? And why has he come from there? And it's one of those questions that the series is kind of set up not to answer because if you answer that question you kind of finish the story it's like the prisoner right if you ever get to the end if you ever find out why the prisoner's there you can't have the series anymore because the entire premise of the series is to ask the question why is he there Mm -hmm. so Doctor Who initially was set up never to answer the question it was asking of where is he from. And although I said we're not going to dwell on stories in which Time Lords appear but that aren't set on Gallifrey, 
the very first thing you ever have in the series that addresses any of the question is the time meddler. <clears throat> and that simply gives you another member of his species and doesn't really give you much, if any, more idea about where the pair of them have come from. Except perhaps, given what the time meddler's up to, to hint that wherever they have come from, time travel is more than simply the means to the end that the sort of TARDIS has hinted at it being. I mean, for example, in The Terminator, right? That's not a... The Terminator is not a film about a species that time travels. It's a film about something else that just happens to include a bit of time travel in order to serve as the plot, right? Mm. So, Doctor Who is not a series about time travel per se. Time travel is just what gets the Doctor from one story to the next. But when the time meddler comes along, and you've actually got another member of the Doctor's species who's actually using time travel as a tool in his plot, in you know, in his plans, as it were, that kind of mm. drops the hint that there's more to the Doctor's species than we might initially have thought. I mean, as far as we've seen up to that point, he just looks like a human being who's either come from the future or from another planet, but to all intents and purposes, in any other way, he's not really any different than us. A bit more sophisticated and a bit more intelligent, maybe, and has a time and space machine, but to all intents and purposes, he's just a pretty regular granddad in terms of his character mm. and personality. Time Meddler hints that, no, possibly that might not be the case. And the interesting thing about that is, that is while... Verity Lambert's still the producer. And although she mm. was just on the point of leaving at that stage, that's quite interesting because, as the series' first producer, even if they didn't sit down and actually say, right, you know, storytelling 101, if you're going to set the premise of your series up as a question asked, you don't answer the question. Again, another example, The Fugitive. You don't find out yeah. whether he's innocent or guilty until the final episode because the series can't continue afterwards. And then we get to the War Games, which is another, what, four years after the Time Meddler? So, mm -hmm. they address, two years into Doctor Who, they kind of address it a little bit. And, uh, Dennis Spooner, who writes the Time Meddler, obviously he's just, He's a script editor at this point, or he's just left, and this is the first story after he's left. He is, at this point, just having a little fun, because Dennis Spooner is the kind of writer who likes to have a little fun, with the format. But, having said that, what he's done, in the case of the Time Meddler, is seed something into the series. And although it's not addressed for another four years, although after the Time Meddler, for four years, you go back to just the idea of the Doctor being essentially, to all intents and purposes, just a regular guy who happens to be very intelligent and has a time and space machine. When it comes to Patrick Troughton leaving the series, well, the first regeneration, as we've said, they didn't lay down any of the rules in stone. And as we've said many times, when William Hartnell wanted to leave the show, or when the producers wanted William Hartnell to leave the show, they turned over a number of different ideas to get rid of him. 
most of which were pretty concrete ideas. His personality's downloaded into a new body was one, or his body gets made invisible, disappeared in the Celestial Toymaker, and could have come back as a different body, but with the same character inside it. Those are very finite. Mm. Those are very finite ways to change the actor who plays the character, and would have essentially left you with the same character. But what they did was something different. What they did was, they changed him completely, and didn't tell you how or why. There was no real explanation. We think it probably mm. the TARDIS had something to do with it, which is kind of obvious, mm. because if it's something to do with his species, then the machine that he owns would just be a natural sort of way of facilitating the change. So when Patrick Troughton comes to leave, another three years later, although a precedent has been set that he can change, no precedent has been set as to how or why. And then, of course, you have Terence Dix, who is the script editor and who is co-writing this story. And although it's very easy to say these things with the benefit of hindsight, it's quite easy to see that Terence Dix, a little bit like Robert Holmes, but coming at it from a different angle, and I think Stephen Moffat is kind of doing this now as well, but Terence Dix is the kind of person who would take the format, or take the inner format, if you will, not the format of the series necessarily, but the format of the story. Terence Dix is the kind of guy who will take the format of the story, pick it up and shake it around a bit and see what comes out. And in the war games, he, whether he really remembers the time meddler or not, obviously something of that has lodged into his head. And... He's obviously thought about what the Doctor is, why the Doctor is, why he's on the run, how he's on the run in the TARDIS, the idea of it being a space and time machine that's bigger on the inside. Mm. And Terence Dix has said, right, what can we make of this? We have no precedent for why the Doctor has changed or what it is that has made him change, and we have to do it again. And, well, the, re the result of it is... He doesn't set a precedent for anybody else because he makes it an enforced change. But because he has no precedent to go before him, in order to make it happen this time, because you can't get away with it being old age like it was with William Hartnell, in order to get away with it this time, he sees the need to make it an enforced change. And because it needs to be an enforced change, there needs to be someone to enforce it. So you take the idea that it needs to be someone to enforce it, and you take the notion that whoever it is who has to be there to enforce it is going to be the people that the Doctor was on the run from in some way, because it's always been clear that he has been on the run, even if it's not clear how or why. Take the idea that he's on the run from a people who have the power of time travel and have the power of transcendental engineering, as they come to call it, throw all these things together, and what is the ultimate destination for Doctor Who? A return to his home planet. This is something he even mm -hmm. mentions in the very first episode, in An Unearthly Child. Say that, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's the War Games is that seventeenth episode of The Prisoner, that very last episode of The Fugitive, where he's proven innocent. Mm -hmm. The War Games is that. And we've said this before. 
the series has to change after that, and it does. And when it goes back to being what it was before, it goes back uh, with the sort of the compromise that it's the Doctor back travelling again because the Time Lords have allowed him to go back travelling again. But the War Games is, to all intents and purposes, the end of the series up to that point. I'm going to have to mm. stop talking and take a sip of water now because <laughs> that just went on for ages. <laughs> it did. <laughs> yeah, but it needed to be said. Like you said, it's, yeah. it's cyclical. It's, it's, um, or cyclical, whatever the yeah. word is. Cyclical, um, I think. Thank you. Cyclical is a good word, though. Um, well, that's what you cut that's um, a, corn that's with, isn't it? Sickle. The point is, that whole yeah. preamble was merely by way of saying that once you've set up a series never to show the Doctor's home planet, somebody at some point is either going to take the decision to show it and finish the series, or to show it and find a way in which to carry the series on. And of course, Terence Dix finds a way to carry the series on, but the important thing is, we get to see Gallifrey. Yeah, it's gonna say, the, going back to that... Um statement in the first episode it i've never noticed that before it does actually sound like a well this is the plan for the series you know one day we'll return yeah. yes we'll return and that will be and the end think, of the series yeah and that and that'll be the end of the series and that's what it's and yeah. that is the yeah. natural end yeah. of the series but of course what happens instead is it's the exile to earth and then eventually mm. he's given the power of time travel back but the important thing is after all that preamble because i think it was important to uh, point all those things out, because we're not just going to start by saying, oh yeah, the war games, well you didn't see much of Gallifrey in that one and you didn't see many Time Lords in that one either and what you do see of the Time Lords is completely contradicted by what you see afterwards except it's not really I um, if I'm uh, allowed to jump around a bit through the series um, we're not going chronologically at all, are we? Yeah, I was going to Oh, okay but you well, can go backwards um, and forwards. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, We've got eight stories. Yeah, I'll, We've got, I'll just say okay, this. I think one of the things... Okay. We've got eight stories that are set either on Gallifrey or partially on Gallifrey. Um, one story, or, you know, The Trial of the Time Lord, if you want to call it one mm. story, that is not set on Gallifrey, but that has uh, so much Time Lord involvement, we can't really discount it, so we have to include it. So, I mean, nine stories. So, go mm. on. You were going to jump yeah, ahead. No, I was thinking that. Um, I, well, I was kind of jump. Yeah, weirdly, the war games. You're right. It does. It, it always felt to me it was a natural ending to the series, and then what we got after that was kind of a bonus, um, mm. uh, as far as Gallifrey is concerned. The war games is a really important and interesting story in the history of Gallifrey and Doctor Who because you've got this. You know, they are they are considered and shown as an all powerful race. He tries to escape them. They keep they keep picking him up once they've detected him. You know, they pull him back to Gallifrey. They're very powerful people, and almost you know they almost feel like they could be warlike, even though they're passive in this. They feel like they could be warlike, and if they had the power you know, to, to go on a rampage, then it will be pretty horrendous. After that, you don't get that at all. You get this uh, this new kind of, we'll get to him in a minute, I know, in detail, but the more kind of fuddy-duddy version of the Time Lords. Right well... Up to two, to, uh, 2005. And then, you know, by the time we get to the big wrestle on at the end, it's it's big again, it's warlike. And actually, I think if you were to jump from, if you were to cut out all the Gallifrey stories in between and just jump from the, uh, you know, um, the war games right up to 2005... 
that would be a more natural kind of progression for the um, time. Well, yeah, but what you're doing here is you've got a list of nine stories in front of you and you're disregarding other things. Yeah. Because both Image no, of no, the it's Fendal, just a, it's just a thought. Image of the Fendal and State of Decay both make the yeah. point that prior to the War Games, the Time Lords were warlike. And it was when they okay. realised... And it's when the Time Lords realised that they are so powerful that being war... Well, perhaps not ostentatiously realise this, but if you become that powerful, you, yeah. you you have the potential to wipe out all other forms of life. It's like the Daleks with a conscience. And yes. once... Mm. And then, Which is pretty much what Colin Baker says in Trial. And then in the end of time, uh, the day of the Doctor and the end of time, of course... What you have is a situation, the, the the time war, we don't see it, but I mean, the, that's what the end of time and the day of the Doctor address. You have a situation whereby the Daleks have become so powerful that they threaten the Time Lords, that the Time Lords need to find that, you know, that spirit of war again, so that they can stop the Daleks doing without a conscience what the Time Lords stop themselves from doing because they did have a conscience. Yeah. We've jumped way, way ahead. But that's yeah. <laughs> interesting because I was going to make the point that the Time Lords we see in the War Games, they are the Time Lords that we see the Doctor escape, or that we don't see the Doctor escaping from prior to an unearthly child. These all-powerful beings and life is so boring and dull. Yeah, we see just enough of the Time Lords in the War Games to convince us that that wasn't a lie. That was the reason why the Doctor escaped. What we don't see is two things. And one, you've pointed out, how did they get to that point? We don't, there's no indication whatsoever in the War Games about how they got to that point. And the other thing we don't see, we don't really see anything much of Gallifrey, and we don't really see anything much of what makes the Time Lords tick. All we really see is even less of what we see in the Trial of a Time Lord, which is the Doctor on Trial, and basically, those three Time Lords are judge and jury to him. They're not any indication of the society. And people said later on, when Robert Holmes wrote The Deadly Assassin, that he was contradicting what we saw in the War Games. But he wasn't. Because what we see, I mean, that would be like saying EastEnders contradicts what you see in, um, oh, High Court or whatever it was called. Do you remember that series that was set in the courtroom? Uh, back when we were kids and you never yeah. saw anything. Do you remember what it was called? Oh, yeah. Some, it was on... <laughs> it wasn't County Court, no. No, it was called something Crown like... Court. Crown, Crown Court. Court, that's Crown the one. Crown Court. Yeah. yeah. But East EastEnders doesn't contradict Crown Court any more than the Deadly Assassin really contradicts the War Games. In the War Games, you see a tiny little bit of Gallifrey. And in the Deadly Assassin, you see a different bit of Gallifrey. And I think the brilliant thing about the War Games is that Terence Dix has put this on screen and said, OK, we will address this, but has put so little of it on screen that actually, for all that he addressed it, there was so much left unaddressed that really, and this was probably the main reason why the series was able to continue afterwards. I mean, apart from the fact that he was exiled, it wasn't that he was trapped on Gallifrey, but you saw so little of it, it didn't mean that that question was answered. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The question of mm. why and who and how the Doctor is. 
none of those questions are really answered in the war games. Just mm. a hint. Just it's a hint. Just, it's it's almost like it could be your like a security section. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing, like the CIA or the FBI version of the... It is, and it's only later on that you see the hierarchy, and you start seeing the pompous idiots at the top. Yeah, that that would... pulling all the strings. We just saw the policemen. Yeah, yeah. So, um... I'll go with that. I mean, that's not... That's kind of making... That blows my theory out of the water. (laughs) That's making (laughs) reasons for things like us fans do, but, um... Basically, what I I find interesting is the fact that no matter what the Doctor does, the the clock is always ticking on Gallifrey. Yeah. So he never visits Gallifrey out of... Out of sync, does he? Oh Most yeah. The when he fights the Daleks, he doesn't tend to fight the Daleks very often. Out of sync. Does it's it? a, that's that's more of a televisual storytelling convention than the because of, there's any fictional yeah. reason for it. I don't. I I, th- I don't think you should really. And by the way, he does make one visit to Gallifrey out of sync, and that's his most recent visit. Does he? The Day of the Doctor takes place like in the hours oh, before yeah, of the end of time. Yes, yeah. So that is because you do you do wonder whether it's possible, whether it's kind of an, an one another one of these unbroken rules. It's a well, storytelling at that point. It's yeah. a storytelling convention. It's like the River Song thing. Up until the last few episodes, every time the Eleventh Doctor meets River Song, particularly in Series Six, where they're telling the story of River Song, those meetings are all backwards. Her last meeting is his first. Mm, her first meeting backwards. Yeah, they go in absolutely opposite directions to one another. And they have to, because if you were to try and tell that story out of sync, you would overcomplicate it so much that you you wouldn't be able to tell it. But if you tell it absolutely backwards, people can keep up with mm. the fact that the next one for him is the last, the previous one for her. And so it is with the Time Lords and the Daleks and everything else. The next one must always be really the next one, because if you... I mean, unless you have... As a sort of plot reason to do so. Yeah. The day of the Doctor. Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah. And the day yeah. of the Doctor taking place on the same day as the end of time, which it has to do because the one has to negotiate the other in order for the story to work. So unless you have a reason to do it, you just keep going forwards because you can't confuse an audience by not having development of the characters and the sort of overarching plot. Unless there's a reason to do it backwards, like he did mm. with River Song. Mm. Anyway, the next up is the Three Doctors. And we can pretty much discount <laughs> that one, apart from a couple of things. Um, in the War Games, to all intents and purposes, the three Time Lords we meet are magic. They do magical things. Mm. They, they magic, you know, the Doctor and Jamie and Zoe into traps and all this other kind of stuff. We never see how any of this stuff happens. We just hear them say that mm. they're going to do something and then we see them do it. And it is, to all intents and purposes, magic. And the thing about magic in Doctor Who is it's... <laughs> I mean, it's only magic because you haven't explained it yet. <clears throat> I mean, this is true of anything, I suppose. But magic only seems to be magic because it's not explained yet. Well, the Three Doctors kind of explains away the magic. In as, in the as, in the Three Doctors, we don't see a lot of Gallifrey. We just see a control room. We see controls. We see banks. We see monitors. We see switches. We see levers. We see the science behind the magic, in effect. Mm. And the other, how dull it is. (laughs) Well, it is. But having said that, 
by showing the magic in one story in the war games and by showing the sort of the crappiness behind the magic in the three doctors <laughs> in the other story you have mm. seen the two polar opposites you've mm. seen the power and you've seen the tools which means that when we do get to the deadly assassin robert holmes has an open playing field if he'd only had the war games then robert holmes would have been stuck with the magic if you'd have only have had the three doctors then Robert Holmes would have been stuck with the tools. But because you've had the War Games and the Three Doctors, Robert Holmes has the entire playing field of everything between the magic and the tools to play with. And he does, because, you know, the Matrix, if that is not his expression of the magic of Gallifrey, then what else is? But by the same token, there's an awful lot of stuff on there. The sort of the throne and the power behind the throne, the assassination attempt, a prison... Mm cell. I mean, a Gallifreyan prison cell, yes, but a prison cell nonetheless. Uh, it's accoutrements of modern Earth that we recognise and mm. and just complete magic. But because he had that open playing field, he can throw all those things in and Terence Dix and uh, Bob Baker and Dave Martin between the War Games and the Three Doctors have facilitated that by saying you can include anything you want and as long as it falls between these two extremes, and they are extremes, it's viable because there's no reason, having seen these two extremes, for it not to be possible, for it not to be plausible in the plot. Robert Holmes, mm. completely open playing field, and goes to town on it in The Deadly Assassin, The Matrix. If that is not one of the greatest creations in Doctor Who, beyond obviously the time machine that's bigger on the inside, then what is? Mm. <laughs> no, it truly is a great creation. It's a really good idea. Um, it's, it's an idea that can be so big, though, sometimes you kind of find so many faults with it. The idea of it being the repository for all of the Time Lord, time lord knowledge, whether it be, um, either, you know, whether it's being kind of downloaded as the Time Lords go around the universe, or whether they come back and download it into the Matrix, or that it's downloaded when they're dead. I don't quite know how it works. But um, the idea is fantastic, and I, I I kind of felt it wasn't played with enough actually, and uh, you know we we did get some great things later on as well, which well, possibly weren't done as well as the Matrix. But I, I just think it's a great creation. I do agree with you there, actually. Yeah, it's I see it as the consciousness. Science fiction wise, it's a great idea. I see it as the consciousness of all the Time Lords that ever were, and so mm, it's right. it's everything. Basically, I mean, given where the Time Lords have been in their TARDISes, you know, the Matrix is essentially a distillation of everything that ever was, everything that ever is, and everything that ever will be, all in one place where it floats around, you know, as a kind of jelly, as a kind of and that, mental jelly. Yeah, mental jelly. <laughs> oh dear, you could sell that. Um, it It brings me to one of my... Bugbears? Things that, yeah, well, not bugbears really, but something I've thought about, I always think about with Gallifrey. Um, Lee, is, you're going to have to tell yeah. me. We've never ready? actually on this podcast seen any evidence of you thinking, so <laughs> I'm going to take the rest of this sentence with a pinch of salt. I've been rubbing my head with mental jelly. Um, no, this this is interesting for me. Maybe you can just put me in my place in a second, but um, <laughs> I'm sure you will. Do you want me but to do that before expected? you start, or... Do you want to go ahead first? Yeah, no. Go on, why go on. Do the time, why, why 
do the Time Lords have TARDISes and what the hell do they do with them? How do you mean? Because because by the time we see them, they've stopped using them. But Is why? that what you mean? What's their point? Yeah, what's their point? Are the, the things about the Time Lords well, Society, the fact that they can... We... Travelling time. I know they're observers and things, but I've always wondered what it is they actually do. If they were going to take their TARDIS well, out for a jaunt, no, no, what are no. They doing? Go back to what we were saying about ten minutes ago and jump forward yeah, to the on. day of the Doctor, and yeah. then look at us as a society. Ever since the 1950s, mm. ever since the 1940s, in fact, what have we have? What do we? What have we had stationed at various points around the globe? that we have never used and that we never can. Well, nuclear, nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, the TARDISes have essentially become... I mean, not literally, but to all intents and purposes, is, is if this is your reading of the story, like I said, mm. that the Time Lords have become so powerful that because they have a conscience, they have to take a step back, and then the TARDISes fall into disuse because they are the tools that the Time Lords were using before they mm. took that conscientious decision. So although they still have the TARDISes, unless there are reasons for them to use them, and there, and there would be, because I think it's been said in the series, certainly in the books, if not actually in the dialogue, that, you know, if the Time Lords see somebody say, interfering with time, then they may dispatch somebody to go and have a word. Right? So it's not that the yeah, TARDIS okay. never get used, but, I mean, as we see in The Name of the Doctor, in that short sequence at the start of The Name of the Doctor, you do have, like, all these TARDISes just standing idly by. You know, you're absolutely right to use the analogy of warfare, because if you think about how war is played out now, you compare it now to World War Two you don't get that situation. You know, I remember growing well, up thinking, if a war started, I'm going to be conscripted. I'm going to join the army. That isn't how it works now. War, wars can be fought via satellite. Mm. So you've got the the Time Lords up up on high, looking down on everything, doing everything. They, they don't want to get the hands dirty, so they've stopped using the TARDISes. Yeah. They, they used to use the TARDIS to go in and infiltrate and investigate and and monitor things and now they don't need to because they can use these amazing banks of monitors that look just like BBC but, I mean, control rooms the re yeah the reason why the doctor left because one of the main reasons was he said that they were a boring society it was a yeah. boring place to be they just sit and observe and observe right now i understand that 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 would, i can understand them they may be gatherers of knowledge they may be interested mm -hmm. in the universe and they visit all these millions of worlds and they gather this information well you just said it though like, visits it, so they do still use the tardises yeah, but um, obviously th I like the idea that they're becoming kind of galactic policemen, which we kind of know that they are in a way, peacekeepers maybe. Galactic you have ticket these... inspectors. As yeah, but in uh, they use these, system. ironically, that, ironically <laughs> they use these um, TARDISes, which are, uh, you know, one of them is a police box, and they are like galactic sentry boxes, aren't they? That that's how you're describing it, and I, I I get that. I think that's a great idea, but I'm I don't think it's ever been saying that I'm... one story that's never really explained the reason why they have Tardises in the first place. It'd be well, good for I... somebody to cover that in a story. Yeah, but I told you at the start of the podcast that you don't explain that. Do you mm. know what I mean? I that is part but of I the think question. We're that is Fifty never years answered. in, it might be. Yeah, no, I don't know whether I... there's ever been a story that explains um, 
I mean, obviously, with a race of beings that have gained that sort of knowledge, Rassilon found, discovered the, the way to travel through time. They created TARDISes, like you do. You know, if you find out how to blow something up, you build tanks. Um, you know, and every now and again, someone goes off in a jaunty on them because they're sitting in museums somewhere. So, <laughs> Like Top Gear. Yeah, like Top Gear. But I, what I find fascinating, the idea of the Time Lords, is very similar to characters called the Watchers in the Marvel comics. There's a character called the Watcher who was a race of beings, and there were these race of beings who got so powerful yeah. that, you know, they could do one or two things with their power. They could either destroy things or they could observe things and move to a higher level of being. Hmm. And the trouble with that is you you then become benign and you become, you know, you do become boring. Yeah. And you can't, you know, you they take this vow of non-interference because they, they think they're higher than high, you know, the level of gods, which is what's been said, isn't it? Hmm. And um, that that's the trouble. You do become benign and, and you think, well, why are you even there? But, that, that but makes if somebody an... notices you, like the Daleks, they're going to come for you because they know you've yeah. got power. And that makes an interesting triangle, doesn't it, between the Doctor and the Time Lords and, say, the Master. So you've got the Doctor and the Master obviously being the polar opposite of each other. Mm. One interfering because he can and he's trying to help, but he mm. shouldn't be. Mm. Another one interfering because he can and he will and he wants to destroy and make a complete chaos and mess of everything. Mm. And then you've got the Time Lords um, up until, you know, the new Rassilon, really not interfering and not being warlike and just trying to you know observe and be sentry boxes across the universe like we've just described yeah. i think the balance is tipped when you get rassilon you know, i think that's why the end of time didn't work so well for me because you got a rassilon <coughs> as bad as the master if not worse mm. and you're thinking well this is this is the hero of, of gallifrey here acting like a complete wonk so it's it's kind of like you know why would you act like a total twonk <laughs> when you've three, already got the master with, a, with a gun isn't it three characters with a gun you get the one who the balance was tipped. who wants to protect people with the gun which is the doctor you've got the yeah. master who wants to shoot people with the gun he thinks we've got yeah, a gun that was shoot good. people yeah. and you got the time lords who say I just want to stand there looking brave with the gun well no yeah. okay let me just break in at that point in the triangle <clears throat> yeah. if you have if you have a faction that is acting purely for good and a faction yep. that's acting purely for evil then those two are going to more or less cancel each other out. But if you need mm-hmm. somebody, but if you need somebody to make a decision, and this is your third faction, the Time Lords, and this is, and this is why Rassilon has become the way he's become, because that's what war does to you. If, yeah. if you need to descend to somebody else's level, it, it's like the old argument about if you have two sides, and one of them only wants to do good things, but the other one only wants to do bad things, then <clears throat> the good one can't stop the one from doing the bad things by being good. You have to be bad to stop him from being bad. It's like if somebody declares war on you, you don't just throw your hands up and say, no, I'm sorry, we're peaceful. You either fight back or you surrender. And Andy? Uh, well, yeah... Not quite. But, <laughs> Tony Blair, sorry. Go but on. the point being is that this is why Rassilon becomes the way he is. He's brought down to that level by the war. Yeah. And it's you can't bring the war up to your level. You have to descend to the level of the war in order to stop it. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I mean, hence the doctor having to become a warrior in order to 
and hence yeah. letting, letting the doctor win and showing you that it's wrong to be like that in the first place. And the thing is, it, and what I was saying about the triangle is, if you have, and this is kind of what the key to time is about as well, if you have one who's permanently good and one who's permanently bad, they're kind of cancelling each other out. But because mm. they're cancelling each other out, there's never a decision. Do you know what I mean? It's, no. mm. it's always chaos. And if you look at what the, how the Time Lords fit into that equation, they either sit and watch and allow the chaos to be, or they get involved. But by getting involved, like I say, you have to descend to the level of the chaos in order mm. to be able to counteract it. Mm. I mean, from a writing point of view, the interesting things, like you say, that um, particularly for that, that gap before Robert Holmes, Holmes got hold of them. Um, I've barely even talked about that yet, so we better talk about no. that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's essentially a blank template, and that's what I love. I love Gallifrey and the Time Lords when they become as colourful as any other species. Yeah. And there are obviously eras on that planet. I mean, it's created by the different writers doing their different treatments of how they want to behave with it. But you could say there are different eras of of Gallifrey, and you could also say there are different factions on, on Gallifrey. And I always go on about the Time Lords in bowler hats. And I love that idea, and I'd love to see that explored more, where you get the Time Lords who are have been observers of of different places like Earth. Why there's this obsession with Earth? Well, obviously, because lots it's... Lots of reasons. Yes, lots of reasons. <laughs> but, um, Storytelling practicality, by any chance. Exactly. Well, yeah, just a bit. Um, they also really fond of quarries, and... But, but I love that idea that they're, they're observers and then they'll come down to Earth and then dress in something completely inappropriate. M- much like, you know, Tom Baker when he's trying on all those different outfits and things like that. And, and Gallifrey should be that colourful and that kind of a hodgepodge of things. It's either got to be completely benign and, but, but you know, no, no um, society that is um, oh, liquid and is ever-changing is just going to be full of a certain type of person. You're going to get these little characters coming out, like the Time Meddler, and you know, and we hear about things Rani. like the Corsair and the Rani and the Master. Um, you well, get these little spikes that come out, aren't you? Well, you're going to get. Uh, let's go back into the Deadly Assassin then. But before we do, I can yeah. answer your question about mm. quarries. I mean, <laughs> we have as a species. Ex- physical experience of only one planet, but we have powerful enough telescopes to be able to see, you know, about eight more. And I've got to tell you, the reason why the color for planets on television is quarry is because at the end of our telescopes, we can see eight other planets and they're all made of quarry. <laughs> it's true. You know, if there were, yeah. if there were jungles on Venus and if there was, you know, Mars was made of ice, I mean, obviously, the further out you get, the colder it gets. But the ones that are closest to us, the ones that are, mm. you know, even remotely temperate, where you could imagine mm. life actually existing, they're all made of quarry. Mm. <laughs> anyway, Deadly Assassin, talking about mm. characters. Three Doctors, all you get is a control room and a bunch of, uh, you know, kind of sort of officials. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ranks in the army, whatnot. They're all... Um, yeah. You know, uh, I can't think of the word, Lee. You're not going to help me out here, are you? No, hierarchy, pomposity. No, 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 no. People who are... um, They're all um, military ranks. um, Yeah. Whatever. The generals Mm. and stuff like that. That's what we see in the three doctors. Military hierarchy, yeah. Yeah, we basically see generals and whatnot. And in the war games, we basically see 
three judges standing yeah. in judgment over the Doctor. Definitely. What we don't see in either of those two stories is any indication whatsoever that Gallifrey exists for a reason. Do you know what I mean? In order for a society to exist, there has to be a reason for society to exist. Nature doesn't create something in a vacuum. And even if the only reason society exists is to integrate with itself and to be a society, you still need to see that society in order to get an impression of the fact that it's a real place as opposed mm. to just a bunch of people who happen to be standing in the set because it facilitates your plot. <laughs> and, in, and in The Deadly Assassin, Robert Holmes readdresses that balance and does it deftly and beautifully and vastly as well. The Deadly Assassin doesn't just say, okay, there's a society here. It really shows you an awful lot more of it than you think it does. For example, the sort of television presenter guy, can't think of his name offhand, is it Runcible? Runcible, that's right, yeah. Yeah, Runcible the Fatuous, who's... um, (laughs) essentially presenting a news program on the television that tells you way more about the planet than you think it does it does because if he is presenting a news program he has to be presenting that news program to somebody and if there are people who are not in that room taking place uh, taking a part in that um in that um not procession what's the word i'm using looking for ceremony, ceremony? if yeah. there are people who are not taking place in that ceremony then it stands to reason that those people are slightly different at least in terms of the hierarchy if nothing else in terms of maybe the class possibly or there might be other differences and in the invasion of time we find some but it just stands mm. to reason so robert holmes in the addition of one character to his script and a conceit that this character is presenting a news program, says, okay, what you're seeing here is still only the tiniest slice of life on Gallifrey, but look at how much I give you in this tiny slice. And the two Time Lords are changing, and the asides from them. It's brilliant. He colours in a whole society in just a small exchange of dialogue. And some people think he brought Time Lord society down by doing that. But I think if you're going to show the very apex of something, if you're going to show the tip of an iceberg, then it stands to reason that there is an iceberg underneath that tip. And in the War Games and in the Three Doctors, they've showed us tips of things, but it stands to reason there's something else there as well. You couldn't have gone back to Gallifrey and had every room and every person, like the rooms and the people are in the War Games, It wouldn't be a society. It would have no reason to exist. And even if it had evolved into something that was different from what we know as our society, even if it had evolved into something like that, it still would be a society and there still would be different levels that we would have to see if we were to understand and appreciate that society. And okay, maybe Robert Holmes goes a little bit too far in The Deadly Assassin (laughs) in making it something familiar, but that's how television works. You have to make it f- familiar in order for the people sitting and watching it at home to be able to understand and appreciate what's going on on the screen. 
As my brother once, um, it's one of his favourite um, stories, my young brother Lorne, and he um, he's, he, he just laughed himself stupid at the phrase, what the dickens, where the dickens is my gown, this bloke says. And he goes, "Who the, why, why would he know who Charles Dickens is? <laughs> so it's, it's just that kind of writing that, you know, that, like you say, it's, it's familiarity. And the, the interesting thing about Runcible is that you get a slightly different class of person just within that... Hello, there's a mobile ringing. Uh, just within that room, because obviously you've got the ceremony and the pomposity and the high end. Obviously, these people are in families and uh, that are rich, and you know they're in four different um, houses, almost Pridonian and all that sort of business. A bit like Harry Potter of the past. Lee, be before we go any further, you've got a brother yep. called L- you've got a brother called Lorne. I have, and you're called Lee. Have you got any yes, other siblings? Old... Have you got any other siblings named after geographical features? <laughs> I've got no, but I've got another brother called Louis. That's Louis Lee and Lorne. And then my younger brother's called Ricky. <laughs> Don't ask me why. Um, oh, he got left out, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, oh well. In- yeah, but you know, I, I like the fact that you've got this high, this high end of society that we get to see. Um, and then you get Runcible, which just gives you, like you say, that gives you that entrance into the other classes that are possible out there. And we don't get to see those other classes until a bit later on. Well, a year um, later and that, on. Well, it just so happens to be the extreme lower class. I wonder if there's a middle class on Gallifrey. Have we met them yet? Probably not. They're the ones watching TV. Mm. Well, essentially yeah. we have, yeah. Because, have we? Um, yeah. We see, I mean, you see, well, let's move it on to the invasion of time, yeah, because you see a lot more of this in the invasion of time. But in The Deadly Assassin, you get to see the Chancellery Guard, whatever they're called. That that might not necessarily be what you would consider the middle class, but it is a middle class. It's a working class. Well, it's it's a a working class, but it's a class in between the two classes that we eventually come to see in uh, The Invasion of Time, which doesn't mean to say that we get to see Gallifrey's middle class. (laughs) But what it kind of does is it shows that there's more levels to the hierarchy on Gallifrey than you perhaps would have imagined just from the first two stories we saw. Or from anything else you'd seen since. The point being that the people who live on Gallifrey aren't all Time Lords. Time Lords. That's right. So Time Lords are, and we never have this completely laid out. And it's good that we don't ever have it completely laid out. Because I think if somebody actually sat down and said, right, this is exactly what you've got on Gallifrey, it would A, make for really boring television, and B, it would mean. There's no more reason to go there. You know, mm, fair enough. <laughs> we do as much as we as much as we might not necessarily like Ark of Infinity, say, or Trial of a Time Lord, and we might think, "Oh, Time Lords again, do we have to?" which is perhaps <laughs> why and as much as Russell T Davis started his new series in the aftermath of a time war where he'd wiped the Time Lords out, and even Stephen Moffat has run shy of bringing the Time Lords back. He's kind of opened the window through which they can return, but he's not actually brought them back. Uh, as much as you sort of fight shy of wanting to go there too often, we do all insiders just a little bit think, get a little tingle of excitement if there's a, another glimpse of Gallifrey in the offing. 
But if you delineated everything completely, if you showed what all the different levels of hierarchy are on Gallifrey, if you showed us what they're watching on television, if you showed us what they're reading in books, if you showed us their classrooms, and if you showed us their IKEA coffee houses, <clears throat> we wouldn't want to go back there, would we? Not unless it's, it was absolutely beautifully and thematically designed by some amazing writer or um, visual artist. If you if you could imagine a very strong, tight, and an amazing society designed perfectly for where, where the Doctor came from, I'd be quite happy with that. But I don't think there's a writer out there or uh, you know a director out there that would be able to bring that perfectness of well, what we you... all envision Gallifrey to be. I don't think you can really because you've already had it start too early too differently mm. if you if you yeah. want to if you as a writer if you want to come in and build a society and make it the kinds of thing that you've just described you have to start from scratch and build it from mm. the ground up but there's so much foundation already been laid previously in the series you're only working while other people have laid down for you before you can't build it to your own specifications. You have to bring your specifications to other people's specifications that already exist. It's never going to be the kind of society because it's it's one of those childs of too many fathers. It's never going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. It can't be. So the most no. you can make is a compromise that entertains, I guess, and in and like I say, you know, it, it might be a thing that, if you've not seen it for ages, it's attractive, and you might fancy a glimpse, but you see too much of it, and it quickly becomes dull and stale. That because it is artificial. Like... Yeah, go on. Well, uh, that's what I'm saying. Because of because of the fact that so many different people have built so many different bits of it, it has, it, it has to be, by definition, artificial, because it is not something that is naturally evolved out of a single mind is something that's kind of unnaturally evolved out of many different minds adding different pieces and which well, is not to say series. which is not to say you can't do it well as Robert Holmes did in The Deadly Assassin and I think other people have also done it well as well but I don't think you can ever do it that brilliantly no no I was going to say in the classic series the Time Lords and Gallifrey were almost two separate entities the Time Lords just lived on Gallifrey and Gallifrey was a world in its own right and well, it wasn't the invasion of, the 2000... of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly from 2005 onwards, it's almost like Gallifrey becomes this iconic thing that symbolises Time Lords. You know, Gallifrey is coming back, and it's like, well... Oh, yeah, uh, but... Gallifrey's it... coming back, and the Time Lords just happen to be steering it. No, 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 Simon. <laughs> I just, that I just, was... Well, no, just... <laughs> That's exactly how it was in the classic series, Simon. They've not changed anything. No, no, I'm just saying symbolically the way they talk of Gallifrey now. Yeah. He talks of Gallifrey as being this symbolic thing that that, that embodied the Time Lords. And, and no. With Robert, Robert, Ho misunderstand yes, Robert Holmes and the invasion. What? Go on. Well, uh, the new series happens in the aftermath of a war that has destroyed Gallifrey and all the Time Lords. Yeah. So Gallifrey mm. does become a symbol for what has been destroyed. Because it's been mm. destroyed. It always was a symbol for the Time Lords in the classic series as well. And the only story 
in which it isn't is the invasion of time where you get to see the Shabogans and a little bit of what happens on outside on the outside. But mm. that is then counteracted in the Five Doctors, where what you get to see of the outside of Gallifrey is a construct of the Time Lords and a playground in which for them to play their walk games. So even mm. the invasion mm. of time is contradicted within what six or seven years. So by the time you do okay. get to um, Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat making Gallifrey uh, like a almost mythical thing, there's every good reason for it. It happens in the Five Doctors, and what happens with the Time War kind of that's that squared or even cubed to the power of whatever. It, it becomes a mythical place because a mythical thing has happened to it. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's it's pulled back. Yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying that they pulled it back very very quickly from what seemed to be happening. But um, yeah, they completely get rid of the the, the fuzziness of of Gallifrey, and it, again, it becomes this this thing that that is stereotypical or embodies the Time Lords and what they're about. It becomes a symbol, as you say. Um, <laughs> The interesting but, yeah. thing about the invasion of time is that you get to see elsewise than just Time Lord Society. Mm. And uh, and this is what's interesting about this, is that in the invasion of time, I think they take what Robert Holmes did with Time Lord Society and the Deadly Assassin and make a really good job of continuing with that. I think the way the Time Lords are written in the invasion of time is brilliant. I think the way everything else is written in the invasion of time far less so, and this is probably the reason why, in all the classic series stories that involve Gallifrey or the Time Lords after that, and there are only three of them, you know, that's forgotten about. It may, it may, they may pay lip service to it and mention it, but Ark of Infinity, as far as Time Lord stories go, is deathly dull, and not because of the sets, and because of the cheapness of the sets, and the beigeness of the sets, and the Ikea-ness of the sets, but the reason Arc of Infinity is dull is because Three Doctors has expanded on the war games, Deadly Assassin has expanded on the Three Doctors, Invasion of Time has expanded on the Deadly Assassin, and then Arc of Infinity contracts on everything. Doesn't it, doesn't add anything to the mythos. It adds of, nothing of and it adds leaves nothing. and leaves so much out. It's not so much that it adds nothing. Mm. If it didn't add anything but, you know, continue to contain the same amount of stuff. Yeah. That would be okay for one story as long as you find a way of moving it on again afterwards. But Arc of Infinity adds nothing but contracts. That's the important thing. It contracts. It throws out all the good stuff and all you're left with in Arc of Infinity is not that far different from what you had in the War Games and the Three Doctors where you've got three guys in one room. In Arkham mm. Infinity, basically, you're left with three guys in one room. Okay, I'm exaggerating, it's not three, and it's not one room. But to all intents and purposes, that's what you're back to in Arkham Infinity, and that's why it doesn't work. Yeah, and going back to your first one of your first questions, um, you know, uh, did you need to go to Gallifrey? Yeah, why no. go there and was it worth it? No, for this one, it definitely wasn't on both accounts. Uh, it's went... interesting. Interesting. This this is like it's interesting that you said earlier that you know if you 
if you over if you overdo the kind of themes um or you you play them out say like Ark infinity you go back you know the more you see it the more duller it becomes because you're not expanding on the society it becomes a little bit kind of oh now the time lords again it, for a star wars analogy it's like the jedis when you get to when you watch them in the first film they're like a mythical race they were like the galactic peacekeepers in your brain you're thinking oh wow yeah this is quite cool and then when you get to see them in the first couple of films they're all sitting around a very boring table in a very kind of um oh i don't know it's almost like it's like a county council meeting isn't it it's really dull <laughs> Arkham um, Infinity. exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah no Jar Jar though. Oh, hang on. There's that funny thing. Jar Jar. Yeah. Hey, it looks like Jar Jar. That thing that appears in Ark of Infinity. Thing with you the guys. To go back to the question, why go there and was it worth it? I mean, I answered that in the preamble to the War Games. Why go there? Because that was a destination for the series. The yeah. Three Doctors. Why go there? Because it wasn't quite the tenth anniversary, but it was the start of the tenth season. And they kind of wanted to kick it off with something huge. Robert Holmes... Actually, it was a really good... Also, you know, the reason to go there is that, you know, it included a very important character in the Doctor's history. So, you know, plainly you've got to bring Gallifrey into it or the Time Lords into it at some point. Uh, How do you mean? Do you mean Omega? Well, yeah, Omega, yeah. I know, but Omega comes out of the story, not the other way around, Lee. They decided to... Have the three doctors brought together? The only people oh, they I could, see. yeah, the, yeah. Well, they, uh, only comes... facilitates being able to get the three doctors together, though. Yeah, it? sorry, you're right. Yeah, that, that they did, like, yeah. they wanted the yeah. three doctors. The war games set up a precedent that only the time lords were that powerful. So, in order to have a villain in that story, you have to use that as your starting point. And so, Omega sure. comes out of the story rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah. deadly assassin. Robert Holmes has always had this fascination with the place. He's the guy who came up with the word Gallifrey in the Time Warrior. He's the guy who puts the bowler hat of Time Lord in Terror of the Autons. And then again, at the start of Genesis of the Daleks, that's a scene written by Robert Holmes, um, I believe. And then Brain of Morbius, you've got the Doctor and Sarah Jane on the surface of the planet Khan moaning about Time Lords and again you've got another renegade Time Lord there, a Time Lord villain whose brain and there's a huge amount of tie-in in that story with um, Gallifrey and the Time Lords Robert Holmes has always had something of an obsession with the Time Lords and Gallifrey and that's where the Deadly Assassin came from, those are the reasons why we went there on all those three stories was it worth it? Patently yes they all moved the legend on in some way, but not to the extent that you get to the end of the story. They're all very clever in moving the legend on without moving it on too much. The Invasion of Time, why go there? Well, that's a simple one. A story fell through at the last minute, and they had the sets from the Deadly Assassin. <laughs> they didn't really have a choice. They had to write a six-part story set on Gallifrey because that's all they had the time and the facilities to do. Was it worth it? Yes, because I think the people who wrote The Invasion of Time, being Anthony Reed and Graham Williams, were intelligent enough to do a good job and to make it a valuable story. And in spite of the fact that I don't think it's a terribly good story, at least by the end of it, the last episode is not terribly good, I think the first four episodes are great, and yes, it's worth going there, because it does move things on again. Arc of Infinity... Why go there? 
because it's the 20th anniversary and because they make a decision to have Omega making a return and to have Omega making a return this the complete opposite of the three doctors does the character come out of the story or does the story come out of the character in the three doctors the character comes out of the story in Ark of Infinity oh we've got to have Omega oh in that case I suppose we better have the Time Lords and that and that's the final nail in that story's coffin and I actually think it's quite well written. I th- actually think Ark of Infinity is quite well written, but <clears throat> for the purposes of our podcast, it adds nothing, and you know, it has no purpose. Mm-hmm. It's there purely to present Omega. Yeah, yeah. And then, it. so let's move on. The Five Doctors. Does mm-hmm. I mean why go there? It's the twentieth anniversary. It's kind of become habitual by now. But what does Terence Dix do? He does it brilliantly. He actually sits down and says, right, you know, rather than do what they did in Ark of Infinity, he probably doesn't know about Ark of Infinity, but I'm just saying, for the purposes of argument, he sits down and he says, right, think about it, what works and what's logical. And he comes up with something that works and is logical, and that moves the myth on again. Mm-hmm. I've had to continue, I was going to take a swig. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. I just no, wanted to mention something about the orange burnt, or- the burnt orange skies because I think that was mentioned earlier on, wasn't it, in the in Doctor Who's lifetime in one of the, the earlier centurites. Yeah, so way back, um, and then you get I think one of the major complaints from a lot of fans in quotes was, "Oh, we didn't get the orange skies." And I thought, well, it's the death zone, isn't it? So surely you can imagine a big dome over the yeah, death zone, absolutely. and it would make the the sky turn blue and grey, right? You know, you can you can add anything to kind of explain that away. But I I, I particularly we're not going into the episode, but I really enjoyed that. And the only thing that actually struck me as being not very good was actually Rassilon himself. I always thought he was a bit of a bumbling fool, um, you know, at the end with his big moustache. But the actual idea behind it was absolutely brilliant. I thought the idea behind Rassilon being there and the immortality and, you know, the fact that all the five doctors being so powerful uh, in their own right, really, are humbled by this, um, you know, incredible myth that comes to life and like you say it move it does move it on it moves the myth on quite nicely we've lost jr i know i'm still talking now <laughs> that's all right i'm, I'm still sure jr can edit it later Can't yeah you JR? he'll have to edit it later what about you then simon five doctors hang on let's try and get jr back hang on you can talk about the rest on robot surely actually this is an opportunity to get some words in <laughs> <laughs> We've lost JR, everybody. <laughs> That's it. It's going to crumble now. Nothing's going to make sense. Oh, damn, he's back. Hang on. I'm going to Hello. Try and restart the call. Hang on. Okay. Skype, don't you love it? Oh, it's going all so well. He's, off- he's offline completely. Is he? Oh, we'll wait for him to get back in, but we'll continue talking anyway. I'm sure he's kept us running. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, I love the idea of... This is weird. No JR. Oh, come on. Um, <laughs> He's like I, a third limb. <laughs> again, I go back to this idea of the, the Time Lords getting to a point with their power where they're almost like godlike. Yeah. Um, and therefore, what would they do while they're twiddling their thumbs? I know. Let's start manipulating the the, the species and get them into a war zone and start playing games with Yeah, them. exactly. I mean, that's pretty dark stuff, isn't it? So you not only get to see a bit more of their myth and their past, which is actually quite dark. Rassilon is quite a, a nasty game player, really. Mm. Um, you know, 
he's testing the Lord President and the Lord President fails and he's, he's sucked him into a bit of stone and made him immortal. It's not a very nice thing to do, but at the same time it's kind of like, well, you know, you're president of the world that I help create and uh, that'll be your fault sort of thing. But yeah, uh, yeah. no, you're right, I think so. That was the, the best point you probably made in that entire podcast. And Oh, we hello, Joe. Hello, Joe. We carried on talking. Did you? Yeah. Did you say useful things or not useful things? Yeah, well, you'll have so. to play back and have a listen. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. You can edit it. Um, yeah, we were saying about the uh, the 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 war zone, the and the fact that that showed another kind of angle to the to certain Time Lords characters. Mm. You know, in order to build that in the first place, that does show a bit of a kind of a dark gameplay and um, a bit of a sinister side. Really, I think. Mm. Right, I'm just going to have to take it on trust that you said good stuff, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll you'll be editing such faith. <laughs> um, yes. Um, okay, we did lose each other for a bit, but there'll probably be an edit here, and if there's not an edit here, let's move on, shall we? Yeah. I mean, all I was going to say about the five doctors, might as well say it. You've probably said it, but the introduction of the death zone, what it does. Uh, most importantly, is it adds another layer to the characterization of the Time Lords that they're the kind of species who could have come up with something. That's that, exactly what we said. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> right, then the next interesting... Okay, why go there? Because it's the 20th anniversary. Was it yeah. worth it? Yes, Terence Dix did a bloody good job of yeah. working out the best way to do it and came up with a fantastic concept, a fantastic idea that again moved the myth on and was well worth the story. And a lot of fun as well. Alright, next one up is the trial of a Time Lord. Mm. If people can hear me swigging, I apologise for that, it's very unprofessional, but I've been doing so much talking, obviously I need it. Is it um, medicine? <clears throat> yeah, it's water, it's not vodka. <laughs> the trial of a Time Lord, why go there? Well... We know this. It's so well known. It, the series was on trial. So Eric Sayward, who by this point is kind of becoming obsessed with the continuity in the series, says, okay, <clears throat> actually, if you think about it, trial is a big thing for the Doctor, isn't it? It's what saw him exile to Earth, which, I mean, back then, not so much now because we've got so much more of the series as a history to look over, including the books and everything. But back then, if you remember, in the 1980s, the Doctor's trial in the War Games and John Pertwee's exile, the third Doctor's exile to Earth, if you remember, back when we couldn't see those things on video and they were never repeated on telly and all we had were the books, that trial and that exile was a big thing in the Doctor's past. It was almost what defined him as a character. Do you remember? Is that how it was for you? Mm. I think no. it was. No, do you really not? I mean, I, um, I... I can't remember, really, to be honest. Uh, but to I, be, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of Doctor Who without having that trial and that exile informing how I thought about the character back in mm. the early 1980s. And I think Eric Saywood comes to the same place and makes this... Okay, easy to say with hindsight... It should have been easy to say at the time, actually. Makes this really <laughs> cock-ass decision to uh, put the trial on the... And of course, if you're going to do that, it has to be the Time Lords. It's not actually on Gallifrey, it's on a space station, but to all intents and purposes, it's no different from what we've seen in the Ark of Infinity. So, 
I don't think we really need to talk about it too much. Trial Have of the they Time got, like Lord. a hyperlink to the Matrix then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Keeper, of the, Keeper of the Matrix is there with a link. Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Blimey. And that's about it, really. Well, the bandwidth I, must be incredible. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Better than when we encountered. You know, it's never tonight. really occurred to me. Obviously, you've got that scene at the start. You don't see much more of it. It's never really occurred to me that it's not on Gallifrey. You forget very quickly. Yeah. Actually. Because. Because it doesn't look any different from the Gallifrey that we've really seen in the last no. couple of stories. The actual, the actual indoor like stuff in the Five Doctors is not very interesting at all, is it? Yeah. No, I was no. just going to say it was obviously to try and copy the war game feel. Yeah. Um, That's what it was. You were saying about that, um, the trial at the end of the 60s. If you th- I was going to say earlier, and I, it went out of my head, is that you could almost say that that is a point in the series the same as the 2005 2005, 2005 point in the series where you know people say about oh you got new Who and you got classic Who. There are there are actually three eras, and we're yes. not just talking black and white. We are literally talking, as you say, the series resolves itself at the end of the sixties, then starts anew, and begins afresh. Exactly. You know, so there are three eras. Do you know what the real difference though between the War Games and the Trial of the Time Lord is? With hmm. the War Games, Terence Dix being a good writer understood that the war games is a closing chapter in a volume what eric sayward tries to do with the trial of the time lord is make it mm. a fresh start for the series oh, no. No. yeah no, it's like how to misunderstand the very concept of storytelling it's yes you can start afresh after the trial but you don't start again with the trial no, no. okay then that's the end of the classic series and what's really interesting now is okay you've got lots of books in the meantime from which sort of Russell T Davies cherry picks ideas and concepts Mm. and when you come back you have this post time war doctor who's lost his species and lost his home planet now if you think about it that's more than just, um, oh, I don't know how to phrase this. The idea that he's lost his planet is, like Simon said earlier, has become this sort of mythical phrase, this mythical mm. concept. Mm. But actually, when you boil it down to the most simple, fundamental concept, it's like he's lost his home. Mm. And I, I yeah. think you forget that when you sort of look at the mythical aspect of it. You kind of forget that simple, simple thing. Yeah, and as much as he wanted to never really go back and not be part of it, it's, you know... It's he always like wanted a, it to be there. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like a, I don't know, it's like an auntie or an uncle that you don't really get on with or somebody who you don't really know that well but you, you're connected with and you think, well, you know, when I go there, I enjoy myself. But to be honest, I'm okay not being anywhere near that person. And then suddenly they're, they're gone. You think, oh, okay. I mean, obviously, yeah. we're talking about Home Planet, which is bigger, but mm. it, it's that kind of strange connection, that strange that thing concept, he has with it. yeah. I've got that yeah. relationship with Bude. <laughs> Very sad. Uh, yeah. Moving on. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so the interesting thing about the end of time is, it's Russell T. Davis. By the time he gets to the end of series four and the specials, I, I mean, we've spoken many times in the past about how he sort of made David Tennant the emo doctor, always putting him through the ringer. 
Um, because, because that's what worked. That's what worked in Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who. It is there right from the end of time. I mean, the end of time. The end of the world, where you have that speech about the chips and Jabe, the tree woman, saying, mm. you're a time lord. I thought the time lords were all dead and all this kind of stuff. The emotional ringer is what Russell T. Davis did. Yeah, and the first time he saw him cry, in fact, I think mm. that's see. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It had me, that did. Blimey. But by the time David Tennant comes to leave the role after four years, three series and the specials, and after he's been through the emotional ringer so many times, and the odd thing is, this wasn't planned. Uh, this is something that Russell T. Davis decided to do almost at the 11th hour. But it just feels like the nod- yeah. logical... Did you realise what you just did there? Yes, I realised absolutely what I did, Simon. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the clever. okay, sorry. But the reason why Russell T. Davis throws in Gallifrey right at the very end—it feels like a logical end for David Tennant's character because this is the man who's lost his home. And what greater emotional ringer can you put him through than bringing his home back and, on the one hand, not allowing him? that sort of restitution with his home, not allowing him to make the connection again with his home, and on the other hand also showing that it is such a changed place, it is a place of war now, that he doesn't even recognise it anyway, so he loses it on three counts almost it it, it comes back, well two counts it comes back and he can't have it, but it's changed anyway, it is the ultimate emotional ringer for the ultimate emo doctor and it just it, ridiculously logical, in spite of the fact that it was a decision made at the last minute. Unbelievable. And in a weird way, what you've just said reminds me of what you said earlier about the first Doctor, uh, mm. you know, uh, it coming to a, a cycle, it, it coming to an end with the war games. This feels the same. You know, you start with Christopher Eccleston, 2005, lost his home planet, never to be found again. Yeah, I've, I know they're not around. I can feel it here. There's no one out there. And then by the end of David Tennant's run, by the end of Russell T. Davis's run, you know, he brings back Gallifrey, and there it is. So you get you get that whole story, and then actually, and he's done the same thing again. Yeah, you know, you're just yeah. about to say it. Yeah, 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 exactly. He's done the same thing again. He's he's brought it back, but he's but he's brought it back in such a way that it doesn't get to the end of the story. It just no. marks the end of the end of an act, yeah, as it exactly. were. Lee, I'm just fanning myself here. Thanks for telling me. Oh, that's okay. Because you made a brilliant <laughs> point that I oh, hadn't even you. seen myself. Okay. I love so then, that, that good, eh? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, the point that the end of time is the War Games, whereas the Trial of a Time Lord, which Eric Sayward so badly wanted it to be, wasn't. <laughs> because Russell T. Davis did what Terence Dix did, as opposed to what Eric Sayward did, which was completely the opposite and why it didn't mm. work. And then we have, I mean, because I'm not going to go on too long about these, I don't think, but then we have the day of the Doctor, and Stephen Moffat does something really interesting there as well, but we all know what it is. Yeah, he messes our brain to bits. Well, not a yes and no, but <laughs> kind of the point is, okay, let's the sort of connection you've just made between the Terran Sticks and the Russell T. Davis is mm. brilliant. Russell T. Davis is a very sort of classicist doc, um, Doctor Who writer in mm. those terms. He might have brought this new emotional 
sort of level to the series, but he's basically still writing the same plots. Mm. Whereas Stephen Moffat has sort of taken the emotional level down a level, down a step, and has brought in a different kind of a plot. So, in some ways, Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who is more traditional than Stephen Moffat's, and in some ways, Stephen Moffat's is more traditional than Russell T. Davis. And what Stephen Moffat has done, his plot that he's introduced into Doctor Who, if you will, although it has been there before, I'm not saying it's completely without precedent, is the time paradox. And it's not like he doesn't do it all the time, but um, just as the Weeping Angels are this magical concept that can't actually exist in real life because it's an intellectual conceit rather than actually something that evolution might have progressed towards. So it is with some of Stephen Moffat's time paradox stories that you look at them and from the outside they can't exist. They can't happen. They're an intellectual conceit. And the Day of the Doctor is another one of those. I mean, Mm. obviously, apart from the fact that time travel isn't possible, you know, doesn't happen. And I mean, you know, we'd know about it if it did because we'd see them, right? Whatever. But the, but the point is, it's a fictional conceit. But what Stephen Moffat does is instead of just telling a story, which is fiction, he uses a fictional conceit within the fiction, which takes that fiction a step further away from reality, so that the day of the Doctor becomes like I'm always saying about the Sylvester McCoy stories of Andrew Cartmel, it becomes almost something metaphorical or analogous in some way. It's not a story that you're supposed to take on face value, it's a story that you're supposed to take metaphorically in some way. And so, and this is kind of what Stephen Moffat's always doing and what he doesn't get enough recognition for, but the day of the Doctor kind of takes the end of time and spins it off into a surreal place where it becomes almost an analogy of the end of time. Or, um, not analogy, that's not the word I'm looking for, but uh, uh, you know what I'm saying, I think. What I'm saying is the Day of the Doctor is uh, works on so many levels that it replaces the end of time, it comments on the end of time, it reflects the end of time, and it looks at the end of time. Do you know what I'm saying? It does all these things at once. It's brilliant. It makes it, it, makes it even better than the end of time. You it know, does. Isn't it in a bizarre... I mean, you know my thoughts when I was talking about it a few months back. That I was completely befuddled because it was. I felt it very confusing. We did watch it while we were half drunk at a wedding, mind. Um, and uh, I've watched it since and I've looked at it and gone, oh my God, this is actually blooming genius writing um so yeah i mean it just it it gets the end of time and you think hang on a minute it gets by the neck and shakes it completely you think amazing actually amazing piece of writing well what it it does is like you say stephen moffat does he pulls it into the fairy tale land there's this lovely magical quality to it. although you do see gallifrey and you see the daleks attacking during during the time war which is quite weird you when they do finally become involved towards the end of Day of the Doctor they are kind of pulled back into this fairy tale thing when you see them again or as much as you see them in the time of the Doctor yeah they are mystical. literally it's almost like this mythical thing you, you know the, the space the fairy dust 
yeah. comes down. The you Peter get, Pan the, ferry dust yeah. comes down from the. So it's almost gone woods. all the way back to what they were originally back in the war games again. This kind of magical side of them that you kind of. I mean, obviously, mm. we know that w- what that is is it's vortex dust or whatever it is, you know, to help them yeah. generate. But, but it, it does have that quality, and he's very cleverly, like you say, made it a fairy tale again. Made well, them... it's completely <laughs> deliberate because what Stephen Moffat has done and what Russell T. Davies also did was they took all the clues that the classical series had given up. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking just in the Gallifrey stories, but in any other story that mentioned Gallifrey, like Image of the Fendal and like State of Decay, took all those clues and brought them to a logical conclusion so that both the end of time and the day of the Doctor feel like natural progressions for where the Gallifrey story would go. But what the Day of the Doctor so brilliantly does is kind of metaphorically takes that entire story. How did the Time Lords become what they became? And why are they the way they are? And actually puts that on screen at a metaphorical level. The Time Lords, as we know, used to be warlike, became so powerful that they could no longer be warlike. Mm -hmm. And in the Day of the Doctor, you actually get to see that on screen. You get this weapon that the Doctor has to use and you get the Time Lords making a decision that he should... I mean, they're party to the decision. They they even have that speech in the scene quite early on where they know he's going to take it. And the Doctor comes and the Doctor, the John Hurt Doctor, is kind of the metaphor for the species in that he makes the choice to put the war behind them and to choose the peaceful way that involves the ultimate boredom, which is where you come in with the war games <laughs> and why the Doctor escapes from Gallifrey in the first place. It's <laughs> Stephen Moffat not just commenting on the series, but actually, but actually sort of distilling the entire series into one 75-minute episode of television. Astonishing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Just on a visual thing, again, I was talking about the themes and the kind of the, the ideas behind a society. Uh, there's that, that, like you mentioned earlier, with the Dalek attack on the mm. on, on a Gallifreyan town, or was it the Citadel? I can't remember now, actually. Mm. It might have been the Citadel. But you did get Arcadia. other classes of people running around that weren't the yeah. people that were on the outside of the Citadel mm. that we see in Invasion of Time, or the higher, higher up part of the hierarchy. The middle so class. There was, there was a, like a middle class going on. They but I'm going to have to go back and look at, over the place. I'm going to have to go back and look at their fashions to check them out and see what kind of influences they were. Don't you think they must have been regenerating all over the place? <laughs> yeah, you must right. have been like beams of light coming out everywhere. That, oh, yeah. Been, do you know, that would have been really interesting, seeing people getting blown up and just turning into gold dust, turning into somebody else, coming back and have another fight. I think that would have been great. Oh, yeah. Probably no, because... The thing about regeneration is the body will only regenerate if it has, um, if the body that it regenerates into has a chance of life. Otherwise, it's just death. Yeah. Don't be boring. Yeah. That would have been great to watch. Okay. <laughs> right, guys. I think we're pretty much at the end. Mm. Can I just uh, another point for Robert Holmes is mm. the name Gallifrey. Sometimes it's so important getting it's the name right. It's such a great name. It's such a, a good name. I, I was thinking think about so? it a lot today. Well, yeah, I do, actually. I think it works really, really well. It's a really nice word. and Almost it's, Celtic. It, I think it is Celtic, isn't it? Doesn't it come from Ireland? There's no place no, that's Ireland. a joke, Lee. 
Is it? <laughs> yeah, that's Bob Baker and Dave Martin's joke. Is that, is that Simon winding me up here? No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, I was just saying it sounds Celtic. Oh, right. It, was it just sounds weird, weird Celtic. Link. And okay. because it sounds Celtic, Bob Baker and Dave Martin <laughs> used to make the joke all the time in the series. I've been mad. <laughs> really? No, but I really like the name. I really like the name. I mean, it could have been called, I don't know, what could it have been called? I suppose it has quite a lyrical quality, but what doesn't have, and this was, I suppose, if you think the Time Lords should have continued being like they were in the War Games, what it doesn't have is a mythical quality. It has a lyrical quality rather than a mythical quality. Yeah. But really the name of the planet that the Time Lords come from should have possibly had more of a mythical than a lyrical quality. Maybe. It could have been called Poosh. We were lucky. <laughs> um, I beg you know, to differ, actually. I think it's quite mythical, personally. <laughs> That's my. I don't think it is. I th- it just sounds I like a Simon. name. It just sounds like a name for an alien planet. Oh, harsh. Well, I think it stands apart from the others. I really do. No, That's I don't case. really think it does at all. I think you only. I think. I think you only think it does because you bring something to the word itself, knowing that it's the Doctor's home planet. Yeah, I maybe. think that's. I think that's gr- what you bring to the word, not mm, what the word mm. brings to the table. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, we've been we've grown up with the word, so we associate mm. it. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe. It'd be interesting to see what other people think about that, about whether the word Gallifrey suits what the Time Lord's home planet should be. I, I mean, obviously, it's inspired by Galilee, and so it has kind of the mythical in terms of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Puff the Magic Dragon. Galilee, Galileo. Yeah. So there's kind of a sort of almost mythical thing there, but I, when I say mythical, I mean legendary. Yeah. Really. Okay. Um. So uh, we've kind of come halfway through the Gallifrey story. Mm. Uh, perhaps just a little over halfway, by which I mean we've talked about all the Gallifrey we've seen so far in the series, but as Stephen Moffat so appropriately said, the day of the Doctor kicks o- kicks open the door for the second half of the series, in a way. It, mm. it In the same way as the five Doctors, and the same way as the War Games, were both natural ends to an act and the opening of the door for another chapter, so too is the day of the Doctor, but very ostensibly so. There's been a story told about Gallifrey across this entire time, not deliberately, but nevertheless, a story has been told of how Gallifrey rose and fell and was ended and was reborn. And the day of the Doctor is Gallifrey reborn. And, you know, what's interesting now is, having been through the Time War, having been sort of exiled to this pocket universe, and having presumably been reduced in some way, I don't mean in size or in scope or whatever, but mm. you know what I mean? By being exiled to a pocket universe or whatever, an alternate dimension, a reduction takes place. So if Gallifrey is, not if, but when Gallifrey is brought back now, the people on that planet are starting afresh and have to start afresh. So we've actually come to the end of a chapter and a new chapter will begin the next time we see the planet. And I, yeah, and I really hope it isn't the same <laughs> as what it was. In the last few, it does have to change. It does really have to change. Um, it, but the be great big question is, 
the the story that we have had told over these 50 years i mean when that very first episode came on and asked that question doctor who and the answer could have been anything anything mm. at all do you think the story we have had told lives up to that question do you think the and I'm, I'm not saying look specifically at Ark of Infinity and say, oh, no, of course it hasn't. Or look at the five Doctors and the Deadly Assassin and say, oh, yes, of course it has. But taken as a picture, the Time Lords that we've seen, the planet that they live on that we see, and the sort of mythical things that have happened to that planet that come with Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, does that story live up to the Doctor? That's a really hard question, JR. I think, I mean... Well, I only asked it so that I could answer it. Yeah. But I'll take your answers first. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you could ask that in a few ways. You could ask it in a way to, you know, of the people that originally saw the series and kind of moved with the series and followed it emotionally through their years of watching it and then discovered his background uh, naturally through the stories and how they felt about it because obviously they may be thinking that it it may have worked it may not have worked better Um, you know the actual answer to who he is Um, oh I don't know I really don't know I think that's that's a big question I'd have to really think about for a bit longer I think it it draws us back to that first episode again the big thing with Gallifrey is you always asking this question why did the doctor leave in the first place why does he not want to be there and be part of it? Mm. So that whole first section about Gallifrey was about the fact that it's become this um, pretty, you know, it's it's quite satirical, really. This this whole powerful society that had become so powerful that it had become boring and it had become um, uh, corrupt. And, you know, the Doctor didn't want any part of it. And and the whole point of it, well, the big part of it being there was it was had to contrast the Doctor. We had to like the Doctor and not necessarily like Gallifrey. And the Doctor has to still dislike it to not be there. And I think what, what's got to be, we've got to be careful of when they bring Gallifrey back, if it does change in any shape or form, is they've got to keep that contrast there. There's got to be some reason why the Doctor doesn't actually want to be there anymore. Unless they change the series to a point where he literally becomes a champion for Gallifrey, but that again, that well, yeah, but that does that then destroy what is great about Doctor Who? There, there is still there is still a question hanging above him, isn't there? I mean, there's a, a lot has been discovered about this character, but there are still little elements that we don't know completely about him mm. that has always been kept from us, and you know, maybe that's what they're going to have to keep drawn upon now you know, or maybe they'll Gallif- just design a new kind of mystery that we don't know about that's always ran in the series Gallifrey's going to have to try and tether him again in some way even if it's psychological mm. I don't know I don't know I'm of not course a not if you've got somebody as clever as Stephen Moffat you can do anything you like with it <laughs> but to answer my question Go on. has the story lived up to the character and I think the answer to that question is if you were going to tell a story to try and live up to the character, this is probably about as good a story as you could have told. So mm. in answer to that question, yes. It has the mythical qualities. It has the legendary qualities. And we don't always see the mythical and the legendary. And I'm not just looking at Ark of Infinity. I'm also looking at the Deadly Assassin. But mm. I think there's enough there, enough colour, enough backstory, enough myth... 
That it just about does. Mm. But you can also look at the Andrew Cartmel period as well. Well, What he was trying to I know, just very briefly, just a nod to it, is that with what he was trying to do with the Doctor's character, it's very difficult to do when he comes from a race of other people who are the same as him. What, to make him mysterious again? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the point. The mystery in the Doctor's character is not that he's different from his people in that he is more mythical than his people, but he's different from his people in that he's less mythical than his people. He doesn't want to live that boring legend. He wants to go off and just be a regular person. Mm. And that's, Mm. I think, Andrew Cartmel's one mistake, is that he misunderstood that and tried to take the Doctor so that he was above the Time Lords, whereas the Doctor escapes underneath the Time Lords. Yeah, He doesn't want to be a god, he wants to be a person. He's got to be a hero despite his qualities, in some respects. He's got to take mm. what he's been given and be the the hero despite them, as opposed to because of them, I think. Right, I'm definitely calling a night on it now. Okay, great. Well done. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next week. Maybe season 24, maybe Crap Monsters. Those two are <laughs> both in the mix coming up. I think we're going to do season 24, though, aren't we? Very yeah, possibly, I'm up for yeah. that. I'm, I'll yeah, that is that is the current plan. So if you we're realize not talking Sa- about you realize Simon's got to watch all of them by next week. That's like torture <laughs> for him. Yeah, it's but you right, also yes. know what will happen. He'll watch them all, and then next Thursday something will come up, and he won't be able to make it. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Until then, I was Jr. I was Lee, and I was Simon, and we will speak again soon. episode of the Blue Box Podcast has been dedicated to David Kowalski for his help in completing my Weetabix collection, and to Andy Rock, who back in February sent the following email to JR and the gang. Can you guys spend an episode, unless you already have, covering the history of Gallifrey and the origin of the Doctor? I'm sure this would be a great story arc for all fans of Doctor Who and keep everyone interested. What is canon and what is not, etc, etc. Thank you, Andy Rock. Now, I don't think we quite answered Andy's email in the way he perhaps wanted us to, but I think we did it in our own idiosyncratic fashion, and I hope he's happy.